You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to the show this morning. Now, I can't see. Alex, do you have, are you good to go or are you uh, in the midst of something there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, good. How are you today? I'm keeping well, thanks. Good. Time change affect you at all? Uh, just a little bit. I'm actually just about recovering. Just about recovery. It doesn't bother me too much. I'm not sure why. Well, it didn't help that uh, over the weekend I didn't... Uh, change my sleep pattern oh yeah but, well i just uh, slept in <laughs> it's all the same to me <laughs> i just kind of stayed up, stayed up way too much but that's okay i, I hear that it, it may be so. it may be coming a thing of the past this time change it's quite possible. That's what I heard, too. Yeah, we're one of the few that uh, still holds on to it. But I gotta say, I kind of like it. I like when, you know, one day it's it's dark at 6 o'clock and the next day it's bright at 6 o'clock. It kind of it kind of makes the happy come alive, you know? All it of does. a sudden the time has changed, the sun is out. Uh, not today, but uh, I like it. So I hope, uh, I hope everyone uh, went through the time change and looking forward to spring as much as I am. We had just a beautiful weekend, so very much looking forward to, although the winter has not been too bad as far as I'm concerned, but uh, hopefully everyone put up your hand if you forgot about the time change. I know a few people who did that, but um, it's always funny going to That's church what- and seeing the people coming, in, <laughs> like looking at why is the mass almost over? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why it's on a weekend and not a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be a lot of, uh, a lot of disappointed bosses Exactly. <laughs> and managers. But yeah, you know what? And how, how do you blame people for the excuse? I didn't change my clock. Oh, well. So we move on to things. Today's show is live. If you would like to call in, our number is 416-245-1534. Please do follow us. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. Lots of fun stuff on there for you, as well as uh, upcoming shows and information about our guests each week. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.com. And do subscribe to our podcast. We are on Health Hub. We are on Health Hub. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. We are on uh, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. And we are the Health Hub uh, if you're looking us up. Um, and you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. Um, I believe our show is up from last week. Tina Anderson with uh, talking about, we talked about uh, all things probiotics. Uh, I've been a little slack. It's not on my website yet, but uh, you can certainly find it under the Radio Maria dome of all their shows. And um, we have a lot of shows from Radio Maria, a lot of very interesting shows. So, you know, do some do some looking over at the other programs. I'm sure you'll find something that's very interesting and appealing to you. 
So today, before our show, we are talking with um, Cyrus and Robbie about type 1 diabetes. And a very interesting show. We've had some interesting questions about that come through that uh, we will get to. But um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the difference between iron and ferritin. This came up in a conversation I had with somebody about getting your iron level iron levels checked versus ferritin. They, they kind of thought that they were the same thing, iron equals ferritin, uh, but two very different things. So I just wanted to um, clarify the difference between the two before we start on our show. Iron is a mineral. Um, it is also an essential nutrient for us, meaning that our body does not uh, create what it needs uh, for us to function properly. So we need to get it from our diet. Um, if you were old enough to remember Popeye the Sailor Man and his spinach, and <laughs> you know, there's one, <laughs> there's one go-to that I go to all the time, but that's a great source of iron for you. And one of the main functions of iron is uh, to form hemoglobin, the protein in the red blood cells. And hemoglobin is essential for the transportation of oxygen around the body. About two-thirds of our iron, uh, the iron that's found in our body, is in our hemoglobin. So very essential for us to be able to function. Uh, oxygen is extremely important. It's needed by all of our cells, and, and iron is a key piece in helping, helping that uh, transmission of oxygen. Other key functions of iron are in helping to convert food to energy, um, helping to maintain a normal immune system, and supporting cognitive function. So what is ferritin? Ferritin is a protein, and it's the main form in which iron is stored in the body. Um, because of this, the amount of ferritin in the blood reflects the amount of total iron available in your body. So oftentimes, if you're going for a blood test, it'll be a ferritin test to get the blood levels of iron in your system. Ferritin will release iron as your body needs, and ferritin is the best indicator of an iron deficiency. So by assessing the levels of ferritin in your body by a blood test, you can, de you can determine your iron levels. So um, this hopefully sort of, you know, segues you into the difference between the two. Um, symptoms of low iron are fatigue. So obviously, uh, if you're not circulating enough oxygen into your system, uh, you will feel fatigued. So if weakness, dizziness, headaches, shortness of breath. And you may also have strange cravings for licorice, uh, dirt, clay, places where uh, iron may be found. So um, very interesting, that, that little nugget that I found. Common causes of iron deficiency include um, in, in, inadequate intake of iron, so a diet that po uh, poorly uh, doesn't give you enough iron, um, and very restrictive diets, inflammatory bowel disease, increased requirements during pregnancy, and blood loss through heavy periods or internal bleeding. Those are all um, reasons why you may experience low iron in your system. There is also a case where you can have excessive iron, and it is known as hemochromatosis. And these symptoms include muscle weakness, weight loss, abdominal pain, uh, loss of body hair, and joint pain. So I just wanted to point that out. It's just a little tidbit of information that um, some people don't, don't know about. So hopefully that gives you... Um, a little bit of, of new stuff for your day. So that one piece of information, you know, that one thing you learn every day. 
So on to today's show, we are going to talk about integrative management strategies for type 1 diabetes. We'll cover, uh, you know, a bit of a generalization of what diabetes is and so forth. And our guests are Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbero. And they are co-founders of Mastering Diabetes, a coaching program that teaches people how to reverse insulin resistance via low-fat, plant-based, whole food nutrition. Cyrus has been living with type 1 diabetes since 2002 and has an undergraduate degree from Stanford University and a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from UC Berkeley. Robbie was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2000 and has been living a plant-based lifestyle since 2006. He worked at Forks Over Knives for six years and earned a master's in public health in 2019. So, uh, as well as what we talked about just before the the introduction, we will be talking about why carbohydrates aren't the enemy for diabetes. This might be something that might be new for a lot of you. Um, And as you know, I think that carbohydrates are given a very negative uh, outlook quite often when we're looking into the nutritional studies and so forth. So, this will be an interesting concept of why carbohydrates aren't the enemy for diabetics. Uh, The benefits of intermittent fasting for those with diabetes and why the keto diet is not recommended by these two gentlemen for uh, diabetes. So we will be back after our break.
to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. And please do follow us on our social sites. We are at The Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Robbie, welcome to the show. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Your partner in crime is going to join us later, uh, I'm hoping. So you're That's taking one for the no. team, eh? I'm, it's so funny how you started off the show talking about the time zone change. That's exactly <laughs> what happened here. We both have it on our calendar for an hour later. But, uh, but I'm here, so and hopefully Silas will join us real soon. Okay, so I didn't hang him out to dry, so note be taken. You hung him out to dry. Uh, Okay. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's okay. I'm sure you. I'm sure you can speak for him. Um, how long have you two uh, been together? So we started mastering diabetes together in 2017, and we knew each other in person maybe for about a year and a half or so before that. But the funny thing is, I actually knew of Cyrus because he was a testimonial in a book that changed my life and encouraged me to even adopt this new lifestyle, which we're going to talk about today. So mm-hmm. I knew of Cyrus since the beginning of my, um, my journey following this lifestyle, which was over 13 years ago now. But we didn't meet until I think it was like uh, 20, around 2016, 2015. And a really successful program. Congratulations to the both of you. It's so amazing when you move into a space like this and you can really help other people. Um, you know, when we're talking about, I want to I sort of talk about diabetes in general, just so that, you know, people may not know. But, you know, when we're talking about type 1 diabetes, um, it seems to me that there's like, you've got it. Here's your insulin live life as that and you've sort of really swung open the doors so that 
people have another way of, of, of handling diabetes, especially type 1 diabetes, other than just through the medical path. So, I, you know, I, I think that's a wonderful thing to do to give people real control over their health. But before we get into what you're doing with the type 1 diabetes, can you give us a, a general sense of what diabetes is, why it occurs, um, just so people get a, a little bit of understanding of the physiology and biology of the disease? Okay, we have so much to talk about today. I am really <laughs> excited. So uh, we're going to get into that in a second for sure. But I just want to acknowledge and say thank you so much um, for that beautiful intro. And we are just super honored to, you know, have helped over 3,000 people. Our brand new book is a New York Times bestseller, USA Today bestseller, Published Weekly bestseller. It's just uh, such an honor. And like you said, it's to help people. Mm-hmm. So we're both living with type 1 diabetes. We have this incredible transformation and the world of diabetes just almost doesn't even believe it. They can't think, wait a minute, what are these guys saying? Like, that's crazy. And now the opportunity to get it out there and share the science just means the world. So thank you for having us on the show. And um, to answer your question, let's just run through the, the types of diabetes real quick. Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the most common form of diabetes is type 2 and prediabetes. Okay. So... That is about 95%, 90 to 95% of all forms of diabetes. And in, the, in America, we have over 110 million people living with diabetes. I'm not sure what the number is in Canada, but it's, it's an astronomical amount of people. And the issue there is that people living with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes have developed insulin resistance to a point where their A1C is now 5.7% or higher. So 5.7% to 6.4% for prediabetes, 6.5% and above for type 2. And A1C is, just to clarify that? average blood glucose over the course of of three months. Okay. So your A1C, you want it to be 5.6% or below with no medication. That's what a healthy person's A1C is. I'm sure yours is perfect, maybe 5% or somewhere around there. (laughs) I'm sure it is. (laughs) Yeah. So, So what's happened here is, their blood glucose levels have elevated, which has then increased their average over a three-month period, and now they have an A1C that puts them into a either pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic range. But the question becomes, why is their blood glucose level too high? What's happening? And that's actually a symptom here. That's not the disease. And that's one of the big pieces of information we're trying to bring to light here. So, you know, what's really happening here is that they're living with insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is when your body is struggling to take glucose out of your bloodstream and bring it into the cells that need the glucose. Therefore, you end up with excess glucose in your bloodstream and you end up with excess insulin. So your body continues to try and produce more and more insulin to try and get that glucose out of your bloodstream and into your cells. This is the state known as insulin resistance. Typical, classic, pathological insulin resistance. Excess insulin, excess blood glucose. And the actual cause of that is when you have consumed too much dietary fat and that gets stored in muscle and liver cells and blocks insulin from working properly. So a simple way to think about this is imagine you have a kitchen sink, okay? And you turn the faucet on and the water just goes straight through the kitchen sink, no problem. It just flows right through. The drain's working perfectly. 
as soon as you begin to clog the drain, okay, let's just say you, you got too much, uh, too much lettuce or something you were cleaning and it got stuck in the drain. So now, well, I, that lettuce is a bad example. Let's <laughs> say you too much butter or something. Since we're going to a plant-based diet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you get too much butter, so it's stuck in your drain, right? Maybe, maybe butter's not good. Maybe something, like, really sticky. <laughs> uh, too much red meat. Um, so it gets stuck in there. All right, now you're, you're, you turn the faucet on, and it starts to fill up, fill up, and eventually it spills over the edge and falls onto your kitchen floor. Like, this is excess blood glucose, right? It's spilling over the edge. But we all know in this case, and I imagine water is the glucose. That's the glucose you're getting from eating bananas or potatoes or beans and rice. In this case, you, you know, everybody listening knows, the problem is not the water. It's not the bananas. It's not that you, you wouldn't stop using your kitchen sink. That's not how you would address this problem. You would go and you would fix what's happening with the drain. So really, this is truly what's happening when it comes to insulin resistance. People are eating dietary fat, particularly saturated fat in excess, and it's getting stored in muscle and liver cells, and this is preventing insulin from working properly. It's leading to excess glucose in their bloodstream. Does that make sense? It does, and I'm not going to talk about carbohydrates here because I want you to continue on with your flow of thought, and we'll come back to this. Yes, we're going to have to come back to it. So that's prediabetes type 2. Now, there are, there's also gestational diabetes, which is very similar to prediabetes and type 2. It's basically the same problem. Insulin resistance is at the core of it. There are some hormonal issues there, but there's no question that once insulin resistance is addressed, you can, in a lot of cases, turn around prediabetes or uh, gestational diabetes and actually not need to use uh, insulin or diabetes medications. We've had many, many um, colleagues who've worked with gestational diabetes patients over the years and absolutely seen that. So it's very similar. And then, pre, then we also have type 1 diabetes and type 1.5 diabetes. These are classified as autoimmune conditions. And this is where the beta cells inside your pancreas, which are responsible for producing insulin, have been damaged. We don't know exactly how or why. We just know the beta cells have been damaged and you are no longer producing a sufficient quantity of insulin. That is the key issue, the underlying issue of type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes. So whereas in pre-diabetes and type 2, you're actually producing excess insulin, especially in the beginning. You can get, your, get exhausted and then eventually reduce your production, but type 1, type 1.5, we're not producing enough. But here's the key issue that we're bringing to light in our book and all the work that we do. You can still be insulin resistant while living with type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes. And what that means is you will need to inject excess insulin in order to manage your blood glucose levels. And it's excess insulin that is a gigantic problem for all forms of diabetes. And insulin resistance is basically the central node in a lot of the chronic conditions that are associated with all forms of diabetes. So people living with diabetes, we don't die of high blood glucose readings. The number one cause of death is heart disease then cancer, then we're talking about chronic kidney disease, neuropathy, retinopathy, fatty liver disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, PCOS, erectile dysfunction, all these conditions are basically, the best way to say it is your chance of developing them is basically in direct proportion to how insulin resistant you are. And that's the major point here. So what we're helping people do 
is maximize their insulin sensitivity through nutrition and lifestyle habits across all forms of diabetes. And that means prediabetes you can absolutely get rid of. There's no question that if you have prediabetes, you are still in a state where you're producing more than enough insulin. Your only job is to find a way to make that insulin work as efficiently as possible, and you can eliminate prediabetes. Type 2 diabetes, vast majority of cases are producing plenty of insulin. The goal is to make that insulin work well, and you can get rid of it. Some people are living with insulin-dependent type 2 because their beta cells have been exhausted over years and years and years of producing excess insulin, and their goal is similar to type 1, type 1.5. We want you to inject a physiologically normal amount of insulin. Insulin is not the enemy. People are reading all of the internet, oh, insulin is so bad. Like, try and get your insulin as low as low as possible. That's not true. You want to get your insulin to an appropriate level, okay? So before... I was diagnosed with type 1, and my pancreas stopped producing sufficient quantities. A healthy human pancreas is going to subject, uh, release about 25 to 50 units of insulin total per day. So if you're living with insulin-dependent type 2, you want to maybe inject a little bit more to add on to what you're already producing. If you're living with type 1, you're producing none then that's okay. You want to produce, inject somewhere between like 25 and 50 units of insulin per day. So the, the issue, is, uh, sorry to interject here. The issue yeah, is um, with the type 1 diabetes, uh, we know that you need to inject insulin. So your goal is to get people to a baseline and making sure that they're not over-injecting insulin. That's exactly right. Because okay. we want them to become insulin sensitive. Mm-hmm. which means their overall health is going to be better. So when you maximize your insulin sensitivity, now you can reach your ideal body weight. Now you can increase your energy. Now you can you know, get rid of that brain fog in the afternoon. Now you can clear your skin. Now you can reduce your chance of developing the major complications. So it's really about this overall picture, and it mm-hmm. also makes, makes it so you can actually control your blood glucose much better. You actually have predictability in your blood glucose management. Your dosing strategy becomes much more consistent. The elevations that you're seeing become much more like rolling hills instead of mountains, which is what you want when you're living with type 1 diabetes. I think it's key here that people understand that. You know, you're living with a disease. There are lots of diseases that people live with, but it's how you take care of yourself and manage the disease. And I think this is the, the, the so very important because, you know, there is this finite idea, like I said, with type 1 diabetes, you, you, you know, you're, 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 your uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You have to have the insulin. The, the word left me. But you need the insulin. You're dependent on injecting the insulin. But there are other things that you can do to manage the disease and the symptomology. I want to get in because we do have a lot of talk uh, that I want to get into after the break. Uh, you talked about fat. Most people go to the carbs. I would guess the majority of people go to the carbs when they're talking about what to cut out for the diet. Why are you saying that it's the fat? Okay, so you're exactly right. This is the huge elephant in the room when it comes to diabetes. If anybody's out there looking, saying, you know what, I, I'm going to follow, um, I'm going I'm to really tackle my diabetes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do lifestyle. They're either going to go super high fat or they're going to go super low fat. It's one or the other. So the reason we're talking about high-carbohydrate food here is because that is the food that maximizes your insulin sensitivity. It is researched over 100 years now, clearly showing that the more fat you consume, the more insulin resistant you become period, end of story. It's literally that simple, and we can get into all the details. I don't know how much long I have until the break here, but um, it's, it's truly, truly a situation of excess fat blocking insulin's ability to 
open the door and allow glucose into the cells. That's that is just so on the ear of what I think most people think. Um, you know what? Let's take a break now. We're going to come back and we'll pick up right on this uh, topic and you can let us know why, uh, what the functionality of fat is and how it's detrimental. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. I- Everything is lost And everything I've loved before is gone Alone Like the coming of the frost And a cold winter's chill in my stony heart Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great discussion here and something that maybe will turn your thoughts about type 1 diabetes a little bit around. Robbie, let's continue on because it's a very, very key piece of what you do is talking about the value of carbohydrates for diabetics and why fat is not um, not the answer for a lot of people. Okay, so I want to share a little bit about my personal experience of how we discovered this in the first place. So, um Back in 2006, I started eating a ketogenic plant-based diet, which is becoming more and more popular these days. And that would be where I would eat about 70 grams of total carbohydrate per day, and 30 of those would be net carbohydrates, 40 of them are fiber. So in that case, 
I would inject about 10 total units of insulin per day. And then, now, I want to make it clear here that people living with type 1 diabetes, we are just fascinated test subjects for this whole concept of insulin sensitivity because we know exactly how much insulin we are using at every meal. We know how many grams of carbohydrate we're consuming, mm-hmm. and we consistently measure our blood glucose. So Sorry, you, well, example, you were you saying when you uh, started the keto, you were 70% what? You said I, se- I ate 70, 70 grams of total carbohydrate per day, but 40 were fiber. Okay. So it was 30 grams of total net carbohydrate. Okay. But, but, but again, I guess the point is like when you, when you eat food, you don't know how much insulin your body is producing. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't, how can you measure that on a meal by meal basis? Whereas us type ones, insulin dependent, we know that every single time we can really have numbers here. So I had this, you know, Cyrus and I both had this amazing experience where I did a ketogenic diet. I ate pretty much nothing but nuts and seeds, greens, oil, a little bit of starchy vegetables, no fruit and kept my carbohydrate intake extremely low. And so my insulin sensitivity, you can measure this by a 24-hour insulin sensitivity. You take the total number of carbohydrates you consume per day, and then you divide it by the total number of units of insulin you inject per day. So low-carbohydrate low ketogenic diet, plant-based with plenty of fiber, I was at a 7 to 1 ratio, Okay. 10 units, 70 grams of carbohydrate total, and then um, 10 units of insulin, that's 7 to 1. Now, I'm eating a diet where I'm eating well over 700 grams of total carbohydrate per day, and I'm injecting a physiological normal amount of insulin, 27 units of insulin per day. And now my insulin sensitivity there is 27 to 1, okay? But then, which is a dramatic change, then if you go and you take a look at it, this from just pure glucose. You take fiber out of the picture, you take fructose out of the picture. When I was doing the plant-based ketogenic diet, I would consume 10 grams of glucose, okay? And mm-hmm. I would inject 10 units of insulin. It's now we're at a one-to-one ratio for glucose. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I am on this low-fat plant-based whole food diet, which we'll talk all about, my ratio is 10 to 1. So it's 270 grams of glucose, 27 units of insulin. That is a 900% change in insulin sensitivity. Hmm. So what I saw in my own body was, wait a minute, I'm eating way more carbohydrate. And you would think I would need an excess amount of insulin to metabolize over 700 grams of total carbohydrate. But what I found is that, no, actually, I need a normal physiological amount of insulin, and everything else on my health improved. So I had chronic uh, allergies, I had cystic acne, I had plantar fasciitis, and I also had low energy. It was not good when I was doing this ketogenic diet. So I had this amazing transformation. Okay, wait a minute, let me go look into the science here. What does research say about people living with diabetes eating more carbohydrate-rich foods? And so insulin was discovered in 1921, first used in humans, in 1922. So this is the beginning of when we could actually talk about the whole concept of insulin sensitivity. And in 1926, Dr. Sansom publishes a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association called, called The Use of High-Carbohydrate Diets in the Treatment of Diabetes. And he started adding bread, potatoes, fruit, and low-fat milk to the diet of 150 patients. And these were patients that were literally just surviving. Before insulin was discovered, 
people with diabetes ate a very, very low-carbohydrate diet just to stay alive. And it was very low-calorie as well. So at this point, he's thinking, okay, if I give them these foods, they're likely going to need a lot more insulin, but hopefully they will at least feel better. And what he found is that the dramatic increase in carbohydrate content did not increase their insulin requirements. And this is the first study really starting to show that, wait a minute, they're eating more carbohydrate, but there's the same amount of insulin able to metabolize it. That's an improvement in insulin sensitivity. He also saw that the patients returned to normal physical and mental activity. They did not have difficulty managing their blood glucose. Their cardiovascular health improved. The diet was more palatable. They had reduced cravings. The diet was also cheaper. This is all the way back to the beginning. And then there has been study after study after study, decade after decade, showing similar results. So my favorite study to highlight is a study done in uh, 1971, Dr. Brunzel, New England Journal of Medicine. He has some patients with prediabetes and some non-diabetic patients, and he feeds them a processed diet, literally a diet of sugar, water, and protein powder. So 85% of calories coming from carbohydrates, 15% coming from protein, 0% from fat. The only way you can design a diet like that is to make it a processed diet because all whole foods contain fat. Mm-hmm. Lettuce, potatoes, rice, beans, fruit, all of these foods contain not just fat, but essential fatty acids. And when they're consumed in large enough quantities, you meet all your fatty acid requirements. But the point is, in this study, he's feeding them an extremely processed, literally sugar water diet. And he goes and he tests, tests okay, compares that to um, a, a diet that was about 40% of calories coming from fat. That was a control diet. And after just, um, let's see, how many days did they do this for? I think it was for 14 days he fed them this diet. And after 14 days on the sugar water diet, their fasting blood glucose dropped by 9.6% in the patients with diabetes. But more important than that is, he did a paired um, oral glucose tolerance test. This is where patients consume 75 grams of straight-up glucose, and then their blood glucose is tested every 30 minutes. But he also tested their insulin levels. So he compared the results of those following the control diet, 40% of calories coming from fat, and then this diet where it was 0% from fat. And he saw that on every point throughout the oral glucose tolerance test, their insulin levels were lower and their blood glucose levels were lower when he fed them a liquid sugar diet. And he concludes the study saying, these data suggest that the high carbohydrate diet increased the sensitivity of peripheral tissues to insulin. And that's just, that's processed sugar. So mm-hmm. the point I, I want to make is not that people should go and eat, drink sugar water to improve insulin sensitivity. It's that we have a plethora of research that we cover in more detail in the book showing that it's very simple. As you reduce the fat intake, your insulin sensitivity improves. But what we want is for ideal health, we want to consume whole carbohydrate-rich foods. And that's part of the confusion in the world of diabetes health right now is that people are equating potato chips to potatoes and donuts to strawberries. These are two completely different carbohydrate sources. Mm -hmm. And the foods that we're talking about in the Mastering Diabetes Method, these are foods that include their original fiber content, include their original water content, and are extremely nutrient-dense. These are foods that are just loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals, and this complete package is what leads to optimal insulin sensitivity in the sense of, yes, these are low-fat foods, 
but they're also nutrient dense, which is a component of you know, reducing inflammation and making sure that insulin signaling is working as best as possible. So the really the whole mastering diabetes method, it truly, truly is the ultimate way to maximize your insulin sensitivity on every single level that human beings know how to do that. So yes, I'm talking about low fat for sure. But by eating these whole plant foods, you're reducing your consumption of advanced glycation end products, which are problematic when it comes to insulin resistance. You're reducing your consumption of heme iron, which is high in animal products, and has also been shown to be a causative effect for insulin resistance. Same thing with excess sodium, same thing with leucine, excess leucine is problematic. And the mastering diabetes method, as you addressed in the uh, beginning of the show, also includes intermittent fasting, which is great for maximizing insulin sensitivity, and it includes daily movement. So we are truly addressing this beast at every single level. Yeah, but it does come back to the biggest impact is the low-fat plant-based whole food nutrition. That is where to start. That's the first component of the mastering diabetes method and it has the most dramatic impact. So I want to, before we get into the importance of intermittent fasting, um, and, and you know, if we get it, if we get to exercise, how that helps with insulin as well, um, do you know the mechanism of action as to why fat does not improve insulin sensitivity, and does it actually um, impede insulin um, sensitivity. Do you know that mecha- mechanism there that we can connect? So if you want to get into the molecular biology, that's, that's Cyrus territory. I'm not going to try and say I know the molecular biology. <laughs> okay. But, but I mean, what I can't, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I mean, as you know, public health and, and the ability to kind of like do all that research over like what should people eat and all that. It's fun to watch and see how, as you go through the research, the, 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 the conclusion of study after study after study is so clear. I mean, in 1935, Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Rabinowitz, he, he did it as a five-year study, a randomized controlled trial, okay? Good people on old diet, which was higher in fat, and the, lower, the new diet was lower in fat. Over five years, the high-fat diet had a 1% reduction in insulin use. On the lower-fat diet, they had a 57% reduction in insulin use over the course of five years. And he concludes the study saying, carbohydrates increase, whereas fats decrease the sensitivity of the individual, animal, and man to insulin. At the same time, in the 1930s, Dr. Hemsworth was conducting fascinating experiments on people who were not living with diabetes. He wanted to study the mechanism of how insulin was working in people who had a functioning pancreas. So he conducted a lot of fascinating studies with male medical students and giving them different diets where the the fat percentage was was adjusted. And there was one study where he put them on, it was seven different diets over the course of seven days. 80% fat, 69%, 58%, 47%, 38%, 25%, and 13%, all right? Seven different diets. And he saw a stepwise increase in insulin sensitivity as the fat was decreased. And he concludes this study saying the greater the amount of carbohydrate in the diet, the greater the sensitivity of the organism to insulin. This is in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And then we just have study after study after study. I mean, Walter Kempner's work on the rice fruit diet 
This is a man who was treating uh, high blood pressure, which was actually a death sentence at, in the 1930s. People didn't know what to do. There was no treatment. So he conducts a diet that's literally white rice, fruit, fruit juice, and white sugar. This was the rice fruit diet from Duke University, and he successfully treated kidney disease, massive obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, arthritis, heart disease, heart failure, psoriasis, and retinopathy with this approach. He could literally take away the challenge of high blood pressure, which is killing people, with this rice fruit diet. But even he was a little bit skeptical, you know, hey, what would happen if I did this, you know, diet with people with diabetes? So he conducted, he published a paper in 1958 on 100 consecutive patients. There's no cherry picking here. These are people eating a diet is 94% of calories coming from carbohydrate, 4% from protein, and 2% from fat. A ridiculously low-fat diet. And he saw their fasting blood glucose drops, their insulin levels dropped, their cholesterol dropped, weight dropped, blood pressure dropped. Across the board, these diabetic patients saw improvements. And there were actually, I believe it was 12 of them, completely reversed their diabetes in the course of the, the, the study. And they just saw an overall improvement. Whereas you really, you should see that diabetes health would worsen when you're feeding them white rice, fruit, fruit juice, and sugar. Mm -hmm. And there was no exaggeration. He was actually feeding them like a large amount of white sugar to make sure they got enough calories. Well, (laughs) it's, you know, the the point, the point too is, and I want to take, you know, I want to be inclusive of people that are, are, you know, not, that don't have diabetes, because this is an important point. Um, Even if you are not uh, diagnosed as diabetic, type one, type two, um, the, the the control of your insulin, the the management of insulin sensitivity is extremely important for all of us, for all of our health. Um, and so this this applies, yes, specifically, uh, we're talking here about type 1 diabetes. But I, I'd like, you know, for people that aren't, as I say, in this sphere of diabetic, uh, of a diabetic condition, to understand that uh, what Robbie is saying does also pertain, we all need to be insulin sensitive. So this, this is a applicable to all areas of our health. Um, and it just goes to show something that I firmly believe in is when you swing so strongly in one direction of a nutrient for and forsaking others, you know, history shows that you can land in a bit of trouble. So, you know, Absolutely. I don't, yeah, I don't come on here bashing diets. I, I try not to, but um, I, I think intuitively people who listen to the show know that I am not a huge supporter of an extremely high fat diet. And I think that we need um, to be sensible. So we, I want to get into the topic here. Um, we've got two things left I'd like to cover before the end of the show, but the, the most pressing one is, is the effect of intermittent fasting in, in insulin resistance. And this is a topic that uh, I appreciate and I'd like you to share with other people. Yeah. So intermittent fasting is taking the world by storm. Uh, it's becoming very, very popular. And Cyrus actually had the opportunity to study this while he was um, at university. He always makes a story about how um, like, he would do this in the lab and he would see these amazing results in the animals all this stuff. We thought, you know what? Nobody is ever going to about this. Robbie? Yeah. Just hold on one sec. Everybody, we're just going to call Robbie back. We're having a little bit of trouble on the line. So so just hold on. Uh, Robbie, hang up. We're going to give you a call back because we, we've missed this whole important piece. Um, and I'll try and I'll try and fill in the gaps until we get Robbie back on the line. Um, 
back to the issue of insulin sensitivity and and the reason for that. We don't want excess glucose circulating in our system. That leads to inflammation. And as you know, inflammation is the root of most, if not all, chronic disease. So we're going to talk about the subject of intermittent fasting and how this improves um, your insulin sensitivity. But I do want you to understand that when we're talking about diet, uh, a diet that has carbohydrates very minimally, um, in my opinion, and as supported here by Robbie, is detrimental to our health. We need carbohydrates for many things. And one thing is that's our most natural source of energy. And when we have energy, our body can function properly. And we're not just talking about running down the street and and daily exercise. Energy is needed for digestion. Energy is needed for repair. And so, you know, this this idea, this notion, and and I know that the high-fat diet has been studied, uh, you know, in, in, in areas, but intuitively, and this is why I like you to go back to your gut as well. Intuitively, we need the macronutrients. We need all of them. We don't. That's why each food has all of the macros in it. We have Robbie back and we're going to pick up on the intermittent fasting. Okay, Robbie, go ahead. Take us into the intermittent fasting. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. But yes, uh, what I was saying there is how uh, Cyrus had the opportunity to study intermittent fasting while he was getting his uh, degree at UC Berkeley. And they would see all these amazing results in mice. And he would always joke and say, you know what? Nobody is going to be interested in this. Nobody is going to want to not eat. <laughs> and and what, how, how this has caught on has just been flabbergasting. And Cyrus is the first one to admit that he was obviously um, completely incorrect about the, how the population, how the public would receive intermittent fasting. But the bottom line is intermittent fasting is a technique to reduce the amount of calories that you consume. It's another mechanism for essentially um, calorie re- restriction. And the, there's many different ways you can do it. But the bottom line is there's only been one proven mechanism or approach or lifestyle habit that you can do to extend your life. And that truly is calorie restriction. When you eat just a little bit less than you actually need or you get closer to the sort of equilibrium of calories that you need on a day-to-day basis to function, that is how you can optimize your metabolic function and you can extend your life. So you pick certain eating windows and you decide not to eat any food in those windows. And then, you know, you can drink tea in there, but this has a powerful impact. Do you do intermittent fasting yourself? I do. I do the, uh, what's the math, 16-8? Yep, so you can do a 16-8, that's an option. So you fast for 16 hours a day and then eat for the next eight hours. You can also do a 24 intermittent fast. You mm-hmm. fast for 20 hours a day and eat for the next four hours. You can also do 25% daily calorie restriction. You simply reduce your calorie intake by 25%. That's the most challenging one. Mm-hmm. Another option is people do an alternate day fasting. You literally fast every 24 hours. So you take like, you fast for one day, and then you, then you eat the next day, and then you fast. But the most common one that we have found that people enjoy is a once-per-week 24-hour intermittent fast. And we actually do that in our coaching program. We do it together as a community and support each other. 
So that's the most common one. I would say the second most common one is probably the sixteen eight that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't even mind changing it up. Uh, I think that that's yeah. beneficial as well, you know, to throw in a 24-hour fast in the midst. And it's been shown to balance the hormones, um, and insulin is a hormone. So you're you're absolutely, absolutely right. And, and, you know, we've talked about intermittent fasting as well. So many applications. We're talking about our overall health. So intermittent yeah. fasting plays a part in reducing inflammation. And in this case, I was specifically talking about uh, type 1 diabetes is increasing uh, insulin sensitivity. So, you know... It, these parameters we've talked about before, and it's it's a beautiful thing that what you've done, uh, Robbie, is to pull them together and put them under the, the diabetic sphere, because I think it's vitally, vitally important. People have control over all aspects of, of our, you know, we have control over our health. Even if we have um, a health issue, there are ways that we can take control and manage. And I think this is an important piece of what you're doing. Um, I would like you to give everybody the, the specific name of your book, where we can find it, how we can get a hold of you, um, because there are going to be a lot of people, I think, that are interested in this approach. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And um, before I give that information, I just want to add to what you were just saying, how this information applies to everybody. And we've actually had a lot of people giving us feedback, but like, you should call it mastering everything. You know, mm-hmm. this works for anything that's going on for somebody. And, and you great, made the great point of, you told your audience that you want to be insulin sensitive. And a lot of your people in the audience, you're not using diabetes medications, you're not using insulin. So you don't objectively know for sure, did my insulin sensitivity change? But I will tell you this, when you start applying the mastering diabetes method and you gain more energy, and you're now losing weight effortlessly, and you're dropping your cholesterol, and your triglycerides are coming down, you are improving your insulin sensitivity. No question about it. Mm -hmm. You are reversing insulin resistance as you're making these lifestyle changes. So that's what the book does. It it lays it all out in crystal clear, step-by-step method. We have over 30 recipes in the book. We have two 21-day meal plans, so people can know exactly what to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's shopping tips, there's restaurant tips, social situation tips, all the logistics, and, of course, everything you want to know when it comes to the scientific aspect of what's going on. You get into all the molecular biology that you were curious about. It's all in the book. We have over 800 citations. So the book is called Mastering Diabetes, and it's available everywhere books are sold. For people in Canada, the best way to get it is a website called Book Depository, and Book Depository will ship you the book for free. So shipping is completely free. They ship international um, with no charge, and they actually have a discount on the cover price of the book. So that's the easiest place to get it. I've heard that Amazon Canada is having some problems with their shipping, so book depository is much more reliable. It's also available on audiobook uh, from Audible, from Google Play. Cyrus and I both read the audiobook version, which we had a lot of fun doing. It's available on Kindle, um, Apple Books, available in all those locations. And if people want to connect with us, the best place is our website, masteringdiabetes.org. We are on Instagram, at Mastering Diabetes, Facebook, Mastering Diabetes. We have a lot of videos on YouTube. Um, Our most famous video is called Insulin Resistance Diet, What to Eat and Why. Um, It's an hour-long video of Cyrus going through all the details of the biology of insulin resistance. And there's a a human demonstration, which really helps people get to stick and really understand what's going on and why fat is the biggest problem when it comes to insulin resistance. 
in that video, it's got over like 1.4 million views right now. So you can just Google insulin resistance diet, what to eat and why. And that's a fun way to learn more here. So we're, uh, we're really excited about getting this information out there. It's, you know, the book is brand new. It's been received really well. And obviously hitting the New York Times bestseller list was a big deal for us. Yep. I just, uh, I just followed you now because um, I didn't receive your Instagram I got Twitter and Facebook, but I didn't receive Instagram in your in your notes here. But uh, so I am following you. A lot of followers, so a lot of people are obviously very interested in what you do. Uh, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on the Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.